0: I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is the state of history. For as long as I've been a professional historian, there have been arguments and debates around the state of history, how it is researched, how stories are told, and in particular, how it is taught. In my education, this really dated back to Jack Granitstein's book, "Who Killed Canadian History?" in which Granitstein argued that the way in which history was taught within provincial curricula across the country was inadequate. And he called for a return to the grand stories of Canada's past, the individuals like prime ministers and military leaders who, in Granitstein's interpretation, were responsible for making Canada what it is. And that book spawned plenty of response articles and and books and debates within classrooms, some of which I was a part of, over how do historians and individuals who are interested in history share that interest with others to ensure that the past and what has come before us all is not lost, that Even if somebody doesn't become a history major, a historian, a history buff, they have a knowledge of what happened in the past. Can an awareness of some of the major themes that have affected Canadian history and continue to influence the state of the country today. And this applies not only at the national level, but at the local and provincial levels As well, which is one of the reasons why provincial curricula vary so much, that there needs to be, in the estimation of those who put these together, a focus on the local as much as you can. So, for instance, I grew up in Ontario and I learned a lot of Ontario history, going back to Upper Canada and then Canada West, and then following Confederation, very much a focus on issues that were central to Ontario. I did not learn about things like resource extraction in the West. I moved to Regina to do a master's degree when I was 22 years old. And somebody, when I was there, said something about a grain elevator. And I did not know what a grain elevator was at the time in part because of where I grew up and the education that I received did not include things like grain elevators. Yet those are such important symbols of Western agriculture and its role in shaping not only the national economy, but also the social and cultural life of people on the prairies. And that is just one small personal example of why this issue, this question around how we teach history and ensuring that history informs our present are so contested and elicit such passion amongst people who are involved. Even on our site at Active History within the last couple of years, there have been multiple articles about the quote unquote history wars that are going on between historians and the debate about what gets taught, what stories get told and why. But within this environment, one of my fears is that historians and people who are interested in history and the the teaching of history are merely talking to each other back and forth and not, in fact, engaging with the public at large, who, frankly, aren't overly concerned with some of these more technical issues around history, but are interested In the past, we see it all the time that there is an appetite for interesting stories of the past and really good historical materials that can not only inform and contextualize what's going on today, but shed a light on those who came before us. Now, within that environment, there is a new book that was just released entitled The Vanishing Past, Making the Case for the Future of History. This is written by Trilby Kent, who studied social anthropology at the London School of Economics. And she has written about this issue within the popular press and has also taught in both Canada and England. And in the book, Trilby talks about her personal concerns and her personal relationship with the teaching of history and widely explores the state of the discipline today, talking with a wide swath of individuals who are involved in the profession. And she notes that history isn't a subject, it is in fact the subject. So I was very excited to talk with Trilby about the book and about her thoughts as to how we as historians and history buffs, people who are interested in history, can spread that enthusiasm more broadly across society. So with that, let's get right into my chat with Trilby Kent. All right, and Trilby Kent joins me now. Trilby, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks so much for having me here.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Again, the book is The Vanishing Past, Making the Case for the Future of History. So Trilby, let's talk about sort of the origins of this book. You talk about in the introduction, how you were out and having a discussion and you decided, hey, this could be a fun book project. And uh, then the pandemic happened and the world went kind of nutso a little bit. And that for you, you really seem to be challenging, but also reinforcing the goal of the project in its origin. So if you could take us back then to you know spring of 2020, when you're getting into this project uh, into great depth and detail, what was your thought process like in those initial stages?
1: For sure. No, that's, that's actually a really good way of, of summarizing it. So I should say, like, you know, first of all, before anything else, I should say I'm not myself a practicing historian, um, not an academic historian, although I studied history at, at university as, as an undergraduate. And sort of after postgrad work, I went on to, to work in journalism, which some people call the first draft of history. I went into writing fiction, nonfiction um, for children and, and adults. But history remained kind of a constant Thread through through all of all of that, and to this day it, it remains my my first love. So I came sort of to writing this book really as someone with sort of a love for for story um, above all else, and a, a belief in the the power and the value of historical literacy. My interest in the state of I guess, how history is is taught and how we talk about it um, sort of predated you know, the events that, of that, that crazy year, as you say, in 2020. I taught for a year uh, at a downtown alternative school in Toronto, um, grade 12, world history, which was a fascinating uh, experience and, and a, a wonderful one. I had a, a amazing students, but it was sort of my first sort of wake up call uh, to the fact that you know, history is is taught sort of very patchily. Um, that we 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 sort of neglect it as as a subject. And as enthusiastic and keen as my students were, they had sort of really quite patchy knowledge. And they wanted; they were hungry for more, right? And around the same time, my eldest child was starting elementary school, and I was curious to see what she was going to be learning there and what the Ontario curriculum sort of mandated in terms of history. And, you know, well, what did I learn? It's it's not actually a subject in the Ontario curriculum until grade seven. Instead, we have social studies. And certainly there are kind of bits and pieces, historical topics, mostly Canadian, a smattering of ancient history in grade four. But that's that's it, essentially. And this was something that sort of alarmed me and, and you know, which I, I thought was just a really missed opportunity, because, you know, my, my daughter, even at that stage, was fascinated by you know, stories from, from the past, the, the great human stories. But this really was just kind of, a, it felt really like a personal bugbear of mine, like it was something that no one else seemed particularly bothered by. You know, most most conversations about um, curriculum reform have to do with STEM, have to do with our math scores, literacy. Um but it, you know, it did then so happen that I had this conversation with with uh, with Ken White, who's a publisher at Sutherland House, and we were sort of throwing ideas around and topics that interest us. And I got onto the subject of of historical literacy and you know, after sort of chewing it over for a little while, he said, well, there you go. It's a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I don't want to write a manifesto, but I I was convinced to write an investigation into the state of um, historical literacy um, here in Canada and and more generally, why it matters, what has happened in terms of the erosion of history as a subject over the last sort of twenty or thirty years, why that matters as as well, and 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 some hopeful examples sort of for you know what what we can what we can do about that. So yeah, I mean, 2020 was a crazy year <laughs> to be embarking on this project to be researching a book about history. There was COVID panic obviously was was at its height, but um, there was lots of conversation, you know, harking back to the plague years and the Spanish flu, you know, people were like grasping for ways to explain what was going on, right? Because even though global pandemics are actually not unusual in the course of human history in our lifetime, it's it's a novel experience. And understandably, we wanted to understand it. But 2020 wasn't just about COVID. It was also you know, the killing of George Floyd, the rise in, in you know, Black Lives Matter, discussions about institutionalized uh, racism, colonialism, slavery. We had all of the statue topplings, roads must fall. And then, of course, by the time I was on the edit a year later, we've got things ramping up. In, in in Ukraine and ultimately the the Russian invasion there. So you know these these three engines of historical change like mm-hmm. pestilence, <laughs> war, <laughs> social upheaval, it's it's all happening like in the last 2 years. And you know, I guess the the encouraging thing about that is that rarely have we spent so much time as a society talking about history, right? Mm-hmm. Looking for precedents and the roots of these crises, and yet like once again over the course of these conversations it became apparent to me that there's seems to be like this fundamental lack of agreement about like what history is and what significance it has it brings to bear on, on the presence why we should care about it and also this absence of a common language. What I've ended up doing is having this great opportunity to um, instead of just harping on about this, you know, and my own thoughts and and, and and opinions, it was an opportunity to talk to historians, teachers, students, parents, curriculum designers from, you know, names like Margaret McMillan, Bob Bothwell, you know, right down to you know, the local, local public school teacher to, to really get their take on where we stand and, and what we could be doing better, you know, how we how we could actually be thinking about a bigger history, reviewing how we center it at school, how we make it more inclusive, for sure, and more diverse, but also more connected and 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 meaningful. And I think there, there's, you know, one thing right off the bat that I do really want to stress, which is that none of these the people I interviewed would argue for a return to how history used to be taught. Right. right. So this is not about, you know, going back to like rote learning and names, dates and places and so on. But there is a consensus that, you know, we should be trying to return, get back to a point to, to how it used to be valued. That's what we've lost. Um, but I, I think it's possible for us to, to rebuild you know, and to, to, to regain that ground.
0: Yeah, I was in Glasgow in the spring and I was walking through, I can't remember which university it was, it might have just been the University of Glasgow, or oh, no, Strathclyde, excuse me. And they have, I think their motto is like the place of useful learning or something. And I took a photo of it on a building and tweeted, oh, the, <laughs> the thing that STEM recruiters say uh, when comparing their courses to history somehow made it onto this building. And uh, that got a couple interesting responses from people of what is the value of history. And I I think there's an interesting question that is frequently asked by parents uh, of people and certainly by undergraduate students uh, and politicians as well when they're talking about funding is the case of of jobs. And this is how they always look at it, right? Politicians love jobs. Mm -hmm. It's their favorite word. If you took a shot every time a politician said the word jobs, uh, you'd be dead by noon. And they look at STEM as the future of employment, And understanding humanities, in particular history, they don't see a direct line to employment. And frankly, I don't think a lot of universities do either as universities continuously push people towards STEM. And I think history departments do a poor job of this as well in terms of teaching their undergrads or providing opportunities for their undergrads to explore what they employment opportunities are with a history degree. So mm. how do you approach this topic and when you're addressing it the case of or the balance that that people seem to be striking in this discussion right now of jobs in the future versus the value the intrinsic value of history.
1: Oh cracky. Yeah, so <laughs> where to begin there's so much to <laughs> say there for sure. Yeah, and one of the uh <laughs> One of the, the high school history teachers I, I interviewed for, for this book said, why would anyone want to study history? History graduates make lattes, right? So exactly. <laughs> speaking, speaking to that, what are the job prospects? And, you know, we're seeing this already in, in practice. In Australia, um, I think was it last year, they actually announced that, you know, huge reduction in tuition fees for subjects that will lead to obvious jobs, right, in, in very particular fields. Um guess what history wasn't one of them <laughs> no right, no yeah. we're done with these if you want to study the humanities, which of course is is crazy and short sighted because history is the subject that teaches us what it is to be human um yeah. it's definitely a, I think a hard sell to um you know to 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 some people um certainly you know and university departments are they at, at, they're at a diff- difficult point i think in terms of history teaching because they've reached a point where the courses they offer, and this is reported to me, you know, by a, a number of history profs, it's, you know, really dictated by student interest. And there's a lack of consensus within the academy itself as to what should we be teaching, right? What, what should we, we be requiring a history graduate to know? And of course, there are all kinds of, you know, fun history courses you can take on very niche subjects. Um, um, a couple that, Margaret McMillan meant, mentioned to me where you know the history of prostitution the history of beer which may reflect the professor's interests or student interests but they don't necessarily build on their own you know to sort of a, a joined up appreciation of 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 the past and you know so where do we stand you know so who cares right is 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 the question you're asking why does this even even matter and so first of all i would say you know, to anyone who doubts the value of historical knowledge without, without self-understanding, right? Without that that rootedness, we are ripe to be manipulated and exploited um, by those who want to sell us their story. Whoever that is, it might be government, but it might be corporations, religious institutions. You know, throughout history, those in power have wanted to control the story, and if we want to be part of a thriving democracy um, we should want to be part of that of that process you know and the other thing that we talk about all the time is what hyper partisan times we live in what polarized times well again training studying history reminds us of the importance of nuance and the fact that you know there are always going to be contradictions and conflicts and paradoxes and in an age of of fake news it it helps us to appreciate context the, the importance of context um mm-hmm. it helps us to interrogate evidence to think critically without just being critical of everything right there's two different things
0: <laughs> yeah
1: you know so i would say you know sure the job market is tough out there and since 2008 there's been a, a huge dive in uh history enrollment at university level. I think it's like 10% down in the UK, 30% in the US, according to The Economist. And I anecdotally I'm I gather it's similar in Canada. And we should be worried about that, right? Because without without that that historical literacy, you know, we're we're primed for some much, much bigger social problems. And this has been this has been reflected here in Canada already. You know, there there's a report that I I refer to in in the book from September 2020, um, a survey that was conducted, it was reported on by the the Guardian, in which almost two thirds of Americans that were surveyed between the ages of 18 and 39, didn't know that 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, right? 23% of respondents said that they thought the Holocaust was a myth. 12% 12% wow. said that they didn't think they'd heard of the Holocaust. Yeah. Now, these are like crazy statistics, right? And of course, you can say, well, maybe it was a tiny sample size. But guess what? You know, in Earlier in, in, in the year, we see the so-called Freedom Convoy rolling through Ottawa and swastikas flying on, 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 the, mm-hmm. on the Canadian flag. We've heard about an increase in reports of anti-Semitic incidents at the TDSB. And guess what? You know, You take a look at the Ontario Curriculum, how many mentions of the Holocaust are there before grade eight? It's zero. Yeah. Um, is there a correlation? I I I don't know. Does the solution to some extent lie in education? Personally, I feel very strongly. Yes, you know. So this is this is something that that you know benefit, and that's that's just one one example. There are huge gaps,
0: sure.
1: you know, in, in in other areas as 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 well.
0: It's interesting, just in the sense that. Like when you're talking about stuff like that, the other thing that I've I've noticed over the past two years is how much people talk about things in history or try to, and and this is mostly journalists and politicians try to put things in historical mm-hmm. context that isn't real. The word "unprecedented" has been used so much in the past two years, oh my gosh, which. Yes. Oh, okay. It's, it's unprecedented if you ignore all the precedents uh, for whatever you're talking about, whether it's the pandemic, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, the convoy, the murder of George Floyd. like there, There's so many precedents within the context of these things that the word almost has no meaning. And even in, in really stupid examples, like I, I watch baseball, Aaron Judge hit his 60th home run and everyone's talking about how historic it was. It was so historic. And I'm like, no, that's not, it's not, it's not, okay? It's a round number, it's fun. But like nobody other than Aaron Judge is going to be bouncing their grandkid on their knee, telling them about the day that Aaron Judge hit his 60th home run. Like I think there needs to be more perspective in what history actually Mm -hmm. is. And then when we're trying to put things in historical Mm -hmm. context, it's been demonstrated that Journalists and politicians are actively bad at it.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, we're living in a time, and you like you know this in terms of your your subject area, your specialism. You know, we live in a time of forty characters or less, right? Soundbite yeah. discussions, and you know, whatever's going to grab the the headline. And yeah, comparisons that feel pat or or um, or easy or, or convenient and aren't sort of necessarily appropriate. Also, you know, listening to discussions where conviction trump's accuracy right it's almost its most passionate voices not necessarily the most the most informed and that's always going to be the case but our best defense against that and our best our best chance at being able to really understand the stories that are being told to us is to have some kind of you know understanding of of the past and of of what actually happened you know it's it's an interesting one you mentioned baseball which (laughs) sort of it reminds me of this, this other point, which is, you know, we're, we're kind of up against this sense in some quarters that that content, that knowledge is somehow elitist. This, you know, we get into these controversies when you start talking to teachers, to curriculum designers, to uh, sort of, um, people sort of working in ministries of education, and there's, there's a skittishness. It's an understandable sort of reluctance to want to push any kind of um, grand narrative, which is completely understandable. But with that is this kind of this, this fear of pushing any sort of specific content or knowledge. But of course, the, the reality is we need knowledge, a knowledge base against which to test new information, right? That's, that's how we yeah. judge the value of a primary source, right? Is you, you have to bring some knowledge to, um, to bear on that. And there was a great um, experiment, a, a literacy test. Conducted by a, um, or at least that he, he refers to, a cognitive scientist called David Willingham, who I, I quote in the book, and uh, it was this reading comprehension test given to uh, two groups of, of school age children, and they all shared sort of a common, sort of general baseline ability in terms of reading and writing, but uh, the reading comprehension test was about baseball. It was about a baseball game, and one group of children played baseball and were very familiar with the rules of baseball. Um, and, you know, like, were, you know, they, they brought a certain knowledge base to, to this exercise. And the other group did not know about baseball. They had not, they were not yet acquainted with the insnets. So <laughs> which group performed better on the reading comprehension test? Lo and well, yeah, behold, be like it's baseball, the yeah. that knows about baseball, yeah. right? They got more out of it. So you know, here we, it's, and it's the same is true for, for, for you and, and I, you know, reading the newspaper, if I'm, you know, re- this is something that obviously people don't do much anymore, but let's say we're reading an article online. If I'm reading about NATO or the, the UN, we were talking about acronyms before. Um, <laughs> if we're talking about, you know, reading about Ukraine. You're not going to be able to make sense of this without stopping every five minutes to look up, you know, an acronym no. that you don't, that you don't know. And, you know, there's, there are always going to be those who argue, including, you know, there's was one um, one writer just last year who was writing on Canadian history education who went so far as to say, you know, teachers role is not to deliver information anymore because kids all have smartphones. They can look this stuff up. If you're stopping over the course of, you know, sort of reading a, a, a news report every five seconds to look up, you know, what is the UN? What is NATO? It's going to take you weeks to, to actually yeah. make sense, to, to, to digest this single piece, it'll be out of date by the time you understand it. It's an interesting one. It's, it's a big challenge. Yeah.
0: Well, it leads to a little bit to the discussion, and, and you've alluded to this, or you, you alluded to this a little earlier, the question about like statues and roads and all that, which has seemed to dominate the public discussion around, around history for a while now. And I have said before, and I've been very open about, as for me, when people talk about statues and renaming, yeah, like tear all the statues down, and rename everything. I, I I don't think that that is actually history. And yes. the issue that I come up to when I talk to people about this is the idea that history is actually transmitted through those things. And then to me, it's this broader discussion of the lack of historical concepts and historical understanding by mm. suggesting that, a name on a building or a statue is the only way that we're going to remember somebody or the only way that we could possibly transmit history from one generation to the next. And this is where a lot of what you're talking about comes into the historical knowledge and reframing the way history is taught to people. And therefore those discussions surrounding things like statues and naming could become a lot more informed and a lot more, It's reasonable, if I could use that word, uh, when we have people who have better historical understanding leading those uh, and participating in them, which, of course, we would hope everybody could could have an increased understanding. So how much of what you were looking into or how often did that come up as you talk to people, uh, the idea of names and and statues and all that when, when people were talking about the broad sense of what history is and historical understanding?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I agree with you completely, right? Hi- history does not reside in statues. <laughs> yeah. um, having said that, I think there are discussions to be had about when is toppling a statue an act of resistance? When is it an act of vandalism? I'm not, like you, I'm not particularly bothered about sort of the, the, the statue itself, although I think it, you know, it's worth noting that for, you know the statue of a Confederate soldier that was erected, you know, during Jim Crow has a different history than, say, the statue of John A. McDonald that was erected, you know, in the 19th, 19th century. Mm-hmm. It may well be the case that we reach a point where, you know, we decide that we as a society no longer venerate a particular individual. And you know, that's that's as as it should be, right? Times change and our 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 mores change. Um, I do think that that whole conversation, though, speaks to a wider point, which is that we need to be able to hold two ideas in our head at the same time, right? None of our, even our, you know, our greatest heroes um, were without some kind of moral stain over the course of history. You know, Gandhi said terrible things about Black South Africans when he was working in South Africa. You know, William Wilberforce had had his own prejudices about sort of the working classes so i think that you know once again we return to this point that the more knowledge that we're equipped with may be our best defense against you know really reductionist thinking there have obviously been you know a lot, some very heated conversations in in the u.s i know you've addressed these on on other episodes you know the 1619 project yeah. which is a fascinating one but you know it, it possibly imperfect, you know, and, and and maybe is also limited in some ways by a slightly static view of history. But nevertheless, you know, a, a really important project, interesting movement. And then you've got Donald Trump's response to that, which, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, is uh, um, slightly more, rather more simplistic. And we get into these conversations about, oh, you know, so and so, they're trying to teach people to to uh, to hate our national history or to reject it. And then on the other hand, you know, oh, no, you're Trying to to teach our children to revere his um, our our history, you know, to to um, tell this kind of airbrush story, we shouldn't really be doing either of those things, no. right? The the no, end should be to understand the past. Yeah. You go right back to Leopold von Ranke. May not agree with everything he says. He's a nineteen, you know, he's a product of nineteenth century European thought and but you know he's as one of the great historians and historiographers our job he says is not to instruct future generations it's to describe how things were. like Mm -hmm. that's it (laughs) and I think in some sense we we kind of overstep the mark a little bit when we start trying to make too many value judgments and and that's where we get these monolithic interpretations sort of creeping in and as one of one of the um, historians that I quote in the book says, "You know, ignorance is bad; false certainty is worse." And right. I think that we're we're definitely in an age of of false false certainty, and so that's that's something that you know historical literacy I think is is so so vital to um, to combating.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to think like if you read about some of these laws that have been passed say, in the United States mm. and some of the the states where they don't really hit that middle mark as you're talking about because. I don't know how you teach the history of slavery in the United States without talking about race and how it was black people who were enslaved. That's what the system was. It was based upon race Mm. at the same time. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't look at a seven-year-old and say, you are an oppressor. Like, so I can see why people get upset uh, at examples where that happens in a classroom, Mm -hmm. but that's why we need that middle ground. And it's, yes, it's history is about what happened and telling the story about what happened and those sorts of laws in the United States, that's where historians need to be active participants in this process. And one of the things that I've noticed, certainly in Canada, as long as I've been reading about these things, which is, I guess, 20 years now, uh, you know, if you go back to Jack Granstein, who killed Canadian history, 1997, 1998, whenever that book came out, It feels Mm -hmm. like it's been 25 years of professional historians arguing with each other and (laughs) not involving themselves with Mm -hmm. some minor exceptions, but en masse not involving themselves in real solid public engagement. So as you were going around and talking to people, what was the sense that the role professional historians have? Because there's a lot of history books, we've talked about them on the show before, by Mm. journalists who, for the most part, can do an okay job when they sit down and take the time to write about it, maybe in a newspaper article or when they're on TV, just on a deadline, they're not as good about it. But the books by journalists tend to be pretty good. But it seems like the public discussion around history has been seeded by historians to non-professional historians. So as you were having these discussions, what was kind of the the role of historians, how they saw themselves and how other people saw them uh, to resolve some of these issues?
1: So there are a couple of things that I think we we need to be doing. We need to be having this national conversation, ideally, about reimagining the history we teach, broadening it, diversifying it, also making it a cumulative subject, right? Making it one that that builds on itself year on year, just like math from grade one to grade twelve. Yep. And part of that process, I think, has to involve actual practicing historians, right? We academic historians, the the, the people who are, um, as you say, you know, writing the history books and 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 practicing the the art or, or science of, of of history. When I spoke to Margaret McMillan, she was uh, working on an article for. Prospect arguing the need for more historians to be involved at the the level of government, right? Saying historians need to be advising on policy. <laughs> we every government department should have its its resident historian helping out, and absolutely. In, in the same way, I think we it would be wonderful to see more engagement from from them when it comes to curriculum design and you know how we talk about teaching history. You know, right from from the elementary grades. We've got these declining numbers in, in history enrollment um, at university level, and that relies so much on what's coming up through through high school, right? The level of student engagement in high school, that depends on the skills and the knowledge that are being established in elementary school. So it's, it's all connected. And you're right, we can't just have this disengagement at the top. I also spoke to a number of uh, curriculum experts who you know, are certainly experts in, in how kids learn or how we how we learn. They're not necessarily subject experts. And so I think, it, you know, you need to try and find um, the balance between the two. But yeah, where you, you mentioned um, Jack Granitstein's book and another um, person that I refer to as Bob Davis who was, was, you know, one of the leading educational thinkers and teacher activists of the, I guess, the 80s and 90s. He introduced two Black history courses at, at Stephen Leacock Collegiate here in Toronto. And he was brilliant at, you know, observing sort of the erosion, like what's been, been lost in, in, in history teaching over the years. At the same time that great gains were being made, mm-hmm. doing better at teaching social history and underrepresented histories, but, you know, the consequence of that is that we do it in a really disjointed way. So I think he, you know, he, he also probably would, would agree that there's, there's a need for, you know, sort of a, a return to like history as, as a subject, sort of beyond social studies. There are very particular things that history teaches us. It's, you know, cr- chronology, time and place. Um, it's different from civics. It's, it's different from yeah. geography, Right. It happens chronologically, not not thematically, and you know these are all lessons that you know, it would be wonderful if, if historians took took a lead in sort of joining that conversation and and, and getting getting that message across.
0: It's curious too because you know, when I go out and meet people, uh, new people, not that that's happened a lot lately, but you know <laughs> if I if I'm out and I run into somebody and they ask what I do and I say I'm a historian. They're interested for like 45 seconds. Right. So I almost have to have like my little elevator pitch as to why history is important and why I think people need to be more well-rounded. Actually, I do battlefield tours of the First World War. I was talking to somebody. This is in 2019. uh, And I was going the next day and they said to me, like, I have heard that there was a war. And I thought, oh, my God, um, that's not ideal for historical knowledge. Uh, But it it certainly leads to the question of, because we talked about this a little earlier, the thing that comes up so often when you teach at the post-secondary level is that so what question. Mm -hmm. You know, something happened in the past, like, so what? Like, why does it matter? Okay, there was a war. Like, okay, so what? And we spend so much time trying to answer that so what question. Have we gone... So far into the trying to understand it and the narrative side of it that we've kind of forgotten a little bit about the factual side of it that informs that critical understanding. And it's interesting to think about where that balance is when you're teaching history, when you're talking about history between presumptive knowledge of your audience, which Mm -hmm. I've been guilty of on this show and certainly when I teach when I've taught about radio history, for instance, I just go, I would say, like, okay, Hitler and the Holocaust, and just assume mm-hmm. that everybody knew what I was talking about. And the the great example for me that I've I've kind of leaned on to try to avoid doing that is when I started teaching, the first class I ever taught, when we got to 9-11, I could just say 9-11. And you all were you all remember, right? This was in 2012 or 13 or something. And they were all at least old enough to have their own memories of
1: Mm
0: 9-11. A few years later in 2019, I say 9-11. These are kids who were born in 1999, 2000. I can't presume that same level of knowledge of that event because they were either not born or babies at that time. So it's one of these discussions. And and how do teachers try to navigate this of spending too much time on facts, which can get kind of dry, can get kind of boring, versus the understanding part while also trying to recognize that you don't want to talk down to your audience and assume that they don't know anything but you also don't want to presume too much in the group you're talking to so how do teachers or academics or even some public historians you know what, what was the discussion around the balance between those two things
1: that's a tricky one and that's you know it's it's one which bob Davis who i mentioned earlier was was talking about you know even in in the 80s and 90s his his concern at that stage was we were spending more time analyzing in his this is his his metaphor more time analyzing the window rather than looking at what's outside right so as you say spending more time kind of trying to justify the subject and clarify what the subject is i um as as an undergrad um a couple of my tutors remarked that my essays were too anthropological and they suggested i might be better at anthropology than (laughs) than (laughs) history so i went and i did a master's in social anthropology and that was one of the things that drove me crazy about that discipline is that we spent we seem to spend all of our time trying to decide what anthropology is, <laughs> like what it, if we should feel terrible about the fact that we were even, you know, practicing anthropology because of all of the, you know, it's, it's complex history as a, a, a as a discipline. So yeah, this is, this is definitely one concern. Um, absolutely not, you know, not overloading with with disconnected facts because facts on their own don't mean anything. They need to be sure. connected to some kind of story. I would say, you know, again, like the, the big skittishness, the big sort of timidness um, that I encountered was this reluctance to commit to any single narrative. And this is a, such an interesting question for me right as, as a sort of narratologist as someone who sort of writes and, and, and reads and, and, and loves absorbing stories of course um, you, you cannot teach a single story but the alternative to not teaching any kind of broad narrative broad connected narrative is just a kind of deconstructed patchwork history right and so the challenge, in the same way that, you know, historians are constantly trying, you know, they're, they're pursuing historical truth, but historical truth is a very slippery thing because it changes according to the evidence, according to our interpretation of the evidence. I think the same challenge exists for teachers. And again, I stress, I'm not a teacher. I'm not, you know, grappling with this on a daily basis in front of a, 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 you know, a class of students my feeling from what I've I've learned talking to um, uh, yes, historians and teachers, but you know, cognitive scientists specialists as well to parents, to students who are actually, you know, sitting in the classroom, absorbing these, these messages is that, you know, story is, it's psychologically privileged. It helps us to remember things because it engages our emotions. It engages our feelings. And of course, we need to be objective. We need to be be reasonable and rational and and base arguments on evidence. but we also have to care about this stuff, right? You yeah, as you say, starting with like the so what question, why you know, why do I care about this? why you know, why should boys care about learning about the suffragettes? you know, so what? that's like that's a girl thing. Well, actually, mate there was a point in history where you might have been disenfranchised too right okay. maybe because you didn't earn enough money or or you know you had the wrong color skin so once we can start to engage empathy and, and I you know my personal feeling is that we do this by by telling stories right from the very beginning I think we make history something that feels alive and and engaging and you know once once your interest is hooked I've seen this with my own kids like once once you grab them like they're 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 history nuts for life (laughs) the challenge is it's 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 you know it's it's grabbing them and making them care about it in 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 the first place
0: well I think one thing we, we way back when we did an episode uh called historical anecdotes where we talked about stories that you can tell if you're at like a I think it was in December. So it was like, oh, you're going to a Christmas party. Here's a fun historical anecdote you can tell uh, that would be interesting to other people. Like even stuff like I've noticed over the years that things that I've picked up in history, in my studies, like they make for good stories like that you can just tell at a party or you're sitting around, like even that as a hook. Uh, you know, that's that's a reason potentially to go to a museum or pick up a history book that you might find a story that you can tell when you're in a situation where you're sick of talking about the weather or the local sports team. Like, you know, there, yeah. there's that kind of benefit to it. Now, I, I do imagine that anyone who's listening to this is already interested in history and has a a genuine uh, fascination or love of history in in some way. So what would your recommendations be after having gone through all this, talked to all these experts? What would your recommendations be to to people within the historical community, both professional and amateurs, for encouraging other people to get involved or, or steps that we could potentially take ourselves to branch out and make history more fun and accessible for individuals who may not be particularly interested right now?
1: Right. Well, I mean, I guess the short answer is we have to start at the beginning, you know, with the, with the youngest kids with, you know, telling the great and not so great stories from the past, um, you know, right from, from grade one and not underestimating, you know, even like elementary students capacity for understanding and processing actual information, (laughs) right? There's the trend for the last few decades has been this move away from content. It's, it's, You know, horizon building, education, and and you know, learning about your local community and so on. You talk to a seven year old about Pokemon or Star Wars, and you soon soon learn their capacity for retaining information is infinitesimal if they're (laughs) if if they care enough, (laughs) right? So you know, I think that that's the thing we have to learn sort of not to underestimate what kids can handle and what they can digest. And we need to be really bold then in thinking about how we present this as one big connected story, like from the beginning that, that continues all the way, you know, up, up to, to post-secondary level. So I quote Neil Orford is a, a high school teacher who I quote in the book who says, if every high school has a pathway for math and science, there should be a pathway for history. It should just be a given, right? And you pursue that through, through graduation. I think history has almost been kind of siloed, you know, as like a an odd subject, or I don't know. It it, ha, it it's it's a subject that we don't consider central to you know to producing educated citizens, and so as a result, you know, we we don't teach it in in, in a mindful way. But you look at countries as diverse as like Germany, uh, Japan, Australia, Sweden. They've all managed to agree on a national history curriculum that starts in the elementary grades. I posited this to a a curriculum, a social studies curriculum designer expert at at uh, at UBC. Said, "Oh, well, there's no way that we'd ever do that here. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get. You know, they don't care enough at the top, and you wouldn't get agreement between the provinces." And I'm, you know, if they managed to do it in Germany, where they've got, as I understand, more, more departments than than Canada has has provinces. I think we could do it here. In the UK, they continue to have a discussion about, uh, again, a, a national curriculum. There's The, the Brits obviously are, are grappling with the legacy of, of empire right now, of colonialism and how they teach that, but at least they care enough they're having that discussion. Sure. Um, and I, my, my sincere hope is that we can engage enough parents, um, students, teachers, uh, historians um, to spearhead that kind of discussion here too. I, I agree. The impetus has to come from below. There's mm-hmm. too great a divide between education ministries and school boards to expect them to yeah. <laughs> to lead the way on this. But I do think that it's it's a discussion we're 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 capable of having and 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 we should have. Um, but getting back to your original question, you know, how do we engage those students and and, and make them care? And, I would just return, i go back again to, to story. So there's one, I think, really inspiring example of, of, of a way that, that one group of people has been rethinking how history is, is, is presented and broadening it and deepening it and making it um, engaging at the same time. And that's the Big History Project. This goes back to Dr. David Christian's Big History DVDs. Dr. Christian is known for, very well known for his TED Talk, which is, I think it's like a history of the world in 18 minutes or something like that. You can look it up on on YouTube and it's had gazillions of hits. But Bill Gates, so the story goes, was, you know, working out and watching his big history DVDs during his workouts and thought, gee, this is, this is great. This is, you know, a coherent narrative of human history. And this is something that all high school students should be aware of. So he enlists the help of of various advisors, including Bob Bain, who's a a, a teaching specialist and a, a historian working in social studies at Ann Arbor in Michigan. And he designs the big history project, which is this free, flexible, comprehensive, Uh, curriculum there's a website that has been rolled out as an elective across thousands of schools um, in the U.S. but also globally and its successor is now I I think even more effective it's called the World History Project Um, and it tacks back and forth between the big narrative right a big story that we can get our heads around but also that it goes back and forth between that and the details right do the details, the evidence, does this support the big narrative? Does it uh, challenge it? Does it extend it? This is a project which I think just really exemplifies Bob Davis's belief that history is not about techniques to acquire, but it's a passionate story to be learned, a story with lessons for the present. You know? So that's the, um, the message that I'm, I'm really keen to amplify
0: it's a good message. And yeah, I totally agree. And and a lot more of that comes through in the book. So again, it's The Vanishing Past, making the case for the future of history. Trilby, if people want to pick up a copy of the book or just keep track of some of the other stuff you got going on, what's the best way for them to do it?
1: I trust it will be available at all all good bookstores. Support your independent bookstores where possible. And also from the Sutherland House website.
0: Trilby, thank you so much for joining me today. And we encourage everybody to check out the book. Hopefully it does well. Hopefully people become more interested in history and uh, starting with uh, our listeners here. So again, The Vanishing Past, Making the Case for the Future of History. Trilby Kent, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Sean.
0: So there you have it. My chat with Trilby Kent, and I thank her for her time. And again, The Vanishing Past, Making the Case for the Future of History. Now. Let's get right into today's historical headline of the week, which this week comes from The Maple Leaf from April 23rd, 1931. An article by Roscoe Oliver entitled Biography and Autobiography. And in this article, Oliver talks about the various ways in which people are interpreting history. He writes that one can interpret historical events in terms of ethnology, biology, economics, and in terms, as well, of the lives of great men. And within the article, he argues specifically that there is no one method that is superior to all the others, that all of these forms of interpretation have value. And he goes on to talk about biography and autobiography specifically, and gets into the idea of the great man interpretation, which holds that the great historical events are presented around the life of a prominent individual, that being a man in the Canadian context, a white man. And within this article, he suggests that this may not be the most effective way to tell stories. And he gets into the idea that there has been a bit of a literary turn in recent biographies and autobiographies and the great man interpretation is very much a vestige of the 19th century. And he also talks about how autobiography falls into this category as well, and that it would be incredibly valuable for individuals to write their own stories as that first person account is so incredibly valuable. So he encourages anyone who is going to undertake a biography to be more literary in the approach, to tell the story, to don't just go point by point by point, but to, in fact, craft more of a narrative around a life, put more context into it. He actually writes, quote, it is only natural that many of these biographies are scarcely worth the paper employed in the undertaking. But with a wide method of selection, it is possible in the personal enjoyment of life to live through many lives, thanks to the modern biographer and autobiographer. So here he is in the spring of 1931, arguing against the 19th century version of the Great Man interpretation. And here we are in 2022, where the idea of the Great Man interpretation is still a prominent part of discussions around history so we have gone 90 years since roscoe oliver wrote this piece and some of the same issues are still being discussed i will link to this article in the show notes below check it out it's uh, really fascinating i think to read this piece from the spring of 1931 within the context of some of the discussions that we were having today, not only around teaching of history, but also as we talk a little bit about with Trilby, questions around statues, names of buildings and roads, and whether or not those need to be changed. Certainly that does not come up within this article, but in its broader themes, it certainly relates to the discussions we have today. So again, biography and autobiography by Roscoe Oliver. From Thursday, April 23rd, 1931 is this week's historical headline of the week. So with that, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcasts. Do likes, ratings, comments are helpful, preferably good comments and five-star ratings. Really helps the show, helps keep us growing. If there's anything you want to hear, please feel free to reach out What's old is news at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And be sure to head over to activehistory.ca tomorrow, December 16th for the final installment of the year in review a hundred years later, where Aaron boys, and I have been breaking down the most important events of 1922 and leaving it up to a reader vote. So head over there before Monday you can cast your ballot for the most important event of 1922. The results of that vote will be released next week, which is when we will talk to you again with more what's old is news.